worshipers out the door. Time to find that copy of your scriptures, my friends. I want to encourage you to prepare yourself for the most unusual encounter with Jesus. And my friends, that passage is Matthew chapter 20 and verse 17. Matthew chapter 20, verse 17. I would ask you a question this morning. The question is this. If you could uh, just for a moment be creative and in your own words, what was the mission of Jesus? I mean, he left the glories of heaven, took on humanity, added humanity to himself to live. I mean, we know he did miracles, he did pre- he preached, he encouraged people, he trained disciples, he did lots of verbs. But in your own mind, what was his mission statement? I know that requires some paper and pencils. But in the passage we're going to look at, Jesus gives his mission statement, and it may not be what you anticipate. It may very well be something surprising. So here in Matthew chapter 20 and verse 17, we're going to discover that, and we're going to find that his mission statement should also be ours. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, help us here today. We want you to be honored and magnified among the people of God here today. Spirit of God, we need our eyes open to understand this text, to see it in such a way as that we are right in the midst of it. God, it is my hope and my prayer that you will use this time of teaching to change our minds Begin to shape our hearts, God, that we would have the same heartbeat as you, that we would long for the same things you long for, that we will live as you lived. Lord Jesus, be honored. God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So our passage, it it kicks off with a a really odd request, and I'll tell you, it's a bit off-putting. I mean, you know, the things that show up in people's prayer lives, I'll tell you what here. You'll notice this, uh, this, this, this mission statement takes place in the context of this request and gives Jesus the opportunity, as it were, to talk about a very important issue. It begins with this startling revelation in verse 17. As Jesus was going up to Jerusalem... He took the 12 disciples aside, and he said to them, see, we're going up to Jerusalem. What a most unusual verse there. I think they had a pretty good idea, but I want to tell you, friends, this is the context for this revelation. Jesus is going to Jerusalem. This is not you and I heading towards Chicago. Jesus is not only heading on his way to Jerusalem, my friends, Jesus is on the way to the cross. This is it. Every step now that Jesus takes leads him to one thing, and that is to be nailed to a cross, to be whipped and abused and mocked, 
all that he might die for your sins, to pay the penalty that every one of us owes that we cannot pay but with our lives. And there Jesus went on his way to Jerusalem. And it was in this context that we discover this startling revelation. And notice what he says to them at the end of verse 18, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. Now, this was not new news to the disciples. This is the third time that Jesus, just in the book of Matthew recorded here, has told them that this is precisely what is going to happen. In chapter 16 and verse 21, you may recall, Peter rebuked him. <laughs> he said, don't speak of this. You know, imagine Peter rebuking the Lord. <laughs> but he did because he didn't understand and then in chapter 17, telling them the very same news, they were all distressed. How can this be? I mean, they walked three years with him. They saw him do all of these amazing miracles, not just healing the sick, but raising the dead. The words that he preached, they were like no other. And now he said he was going to be flogged, mocked crucified? How could this be? But this was the plan. So in the context of this, talking about going and dying a sacrifice for sin, and the sons of Zebedee, James and John, their mother came to Jesus. Look at, there it is right there, verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him, Jesus, with her sons. And kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And so we see that uh, this woman, if she was going to pray, she prayed to the right person, to Jesus, who was God. And Jesus' response to her was this. And he said to her, verse 21, what do you want? And she said, now friends, buckle up for this one. Say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and the other on your left in your kingdom. <laughs> I'll tell you, she swung for the fences with this one. And the question is, how could she do that? I mean, what a, what a ridiculous question to ask. Or was it? I mean, why would she do that? Well, certainly because she loved her sons. But the second reason is she took Jesus at his word. She took Jesus at his word. What are you talking about? In Matthew chapter 18 and verse 19... <clears throat> Jesus had told them, again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Well, so Jesus here encouraging his people to pray and to ask to come. Now, Jesus gave a whole lot more guidelines on prayer than just that one, but it certainly begins there. 
And in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 28, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, he's talking to his disciples here. Truly I say to you in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So she was just agreeing with what Jesus had already taught. She just wanted to mess with the seating arrangements, that's all. I mean, the place on the right was of the greatest honor. And if you can't have the right, go for the left, right? But the fact of the matter is, she didn't know what it would cost. That's why she asked it. Look at verse 22. Verse 22. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they, perhaps the trio there, two sons and mom, said to him, we are able. What is this cup that Jesus would drink? Remember Jesus praying in the garden? Sweat like great drops of blood. The intensity of that prayer. Remove this cup from me. What was the cup? It was the cross. He knew what he would face. That moment in the cross where he would cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you know the answer. It's because of your little sin. Those things you think are just a game. Oops. That's what nailed Jesus to the cross. His father separated Somehow, some way, that was the cup. Are they able to do this? <laughs> well, of course we are. But notice these words, my friends. Verse 23, he said to them, You will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And you will note this, my friends, that James suffered death early in the church age at the hands of Herod Agrippa, recorded in Acts chapter 12. He drank the cup. He drank the cup. And John, John is thought to have died a martyr's death at the end of the first century. Tradition tells us he was boiled in oil. He drank the cup. There is this innate, sinful desire, perhaps, of ours to be the ruler, the one that gets to make the rules, the one that gets to determine what everyone else can do and not do. We want to be in charge. Nobody likes being the tail. We all want to be the head. And that's the issue here. Think of how absurd it is of the fact that every one of these disciples minus Judas would sit on a throne with Jesus ruling over all the 12 tribes and being concerned about which throne they're sitting on. Well, my friends, this request... 
was followed with a deserved rebuke. This rebuke is for us, my friends, to listen to carefully here. Verse 24, the first one came from the other disciples. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers, for each of them, no doubt, thinking, that's where I'm going to sit. Notice verse 25. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and the great ones exercise authority over them. And here Jesus tells us that the practice of this world is to rule, be at the top of the pile. Be the last one standing. Look out for yourself. And in doing this, it reminds us this is not us. Notice these words that follow hit me like a baseball bat this week in verse 26. It shall not be so among you. No, not us. Not me, not you. We don't look to rule. You, God puts you in a place of influence, and my friends, that ought to be every one of us, influencing someone. But these are not the things that we seek out to be in charge, to rule, to have the final say. It's in your Bible too, isn't it? It must not be so among you. We must be different. But continue on in verse 26. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. There it is. Want to know how Jesus wants you to live? As a servant. Is one that is minding the needs of others. The one that doesn't look in the mirror and look at himself and wonder about this and the, how do I feel and what do I want, but to look on the needs of someone else. That sounds an awful lot like love, doesn't it? Yeah. Whoever would be first among you must be a slave just like Jesus, just like Jesus, because verse 28 tells us this, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many, and there it is, the mission statement of Jesus, he did not come to be served, could he, should he, will he, one day? Ought he? Absolutely. He is God. But Jesus took the form of a servant and then took the job of a servant. He did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom 
for many. The word of God calls us to be servants. To look for the opportunity to step in and help someone else. To work for their benefit. To work for their good. To be servants. I'm guessing like you, there was a point or maybe a couple in my life where I took one of those uh, career assessment quiz things, you know. And I'll tell you what, the last thing I would have wanted to see on there is servant. How humiliating. I want to be the big cheese, as my first senior pastor referred to himself. Package of books came in the... uh, in the, the mails, just some company sending them out. He says, I'm going to keep these because I'm the big cheese. You can have that one. I know. I just saw these mouths go, who could do such a thing? The fact is, friends, every one of us has done such a thing. Well, I'm not doing that. Find one of those people to do it. That's what Jesus did. And say, let's go send an angel down there to be mocked 33 years, chased after one dead. He did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Sermon in a sentence is this. And God's economy, true greatness, is found in serving others. True greatness is serving others. Now that requires a couple of things from us. The obvious is we need to start changing our mind about serving. And the second is we've got to stop admiring those at the top of the pile with the most stuff. And all of those people that work for them. We need to change our heroes, my friends. Change our models, our mentors, to people who serve. You know, like Jesus. You want to be like Jesus? Serve. Serve. And then here comes the real trick, because this is one of those disciplines, my friends. The things that change our character and conform us to the image of Christ. Serve and be silent about it. Yeah. Because, friends, we do something for somebody, we want somebody to notice. That's the world today of people in cities helping out the poor with a selfie stick at the same time. Look at me, I'm good. Now, that had nothing to do with helping anybody but yourself. Serving silently. Not looking for the praise that comes, oh, what a good woman she is. Oh, let's applaud her. Oh, perhaps we could come with a statue or something as your sinful heart desires. Humble service for the sake of someone else. 
But notice this, my friends, that only he who humbles himself before God is able to humble himself before man. Until you humble yourself before God, you will always wrestle with humbling yourself to serve. And know this, my friends, we serve others by putting others first. Serve others by putting them first. This is victory over sin. All of sin leads to pride. Look at me. Celebrate me. Somebody watch me. Yeah, it is the essence of sin. But love says, you. You are the one that matters. There, there's a tournament, a basketball tournament going on right now. I, I don't know, college thing. And, and friends, it, it lends us to a great example in the coaches. A coach cannot get on the floor and do a single thing. He can only pour himself into the others around him because there is no way a coach will win if his team doesn't win. Think about that. You want victory? Give victory to someone else. Yeah, but then they'll be in the paper. And everyone will look at them and say, except one, the one that whom you live to please, God. Because God knows the heart of it. God knows the actions. God knows the sacrifice. And God is honored in these things. Serve, my friends. Live like a coach. You can only win if the people on your team win. And you say, well, what if, what if I, I start to live this way and I mean, people start walking all over me as if I'm some kind of servant or something? Then you've won. Then you are exactly what God would have you to be, a servant, humble, just like Jesus.